Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. My life as a stripper was so much more controversial and for some reason, you know, the thing that more people had an issue with. I was ready to jump out of a window, basically, and I was unrecognizable to myself. This other thing with the teacher was more relationship-like. And I was like... Really? Like, that's you. That's that's it? That's what I am? I'm just bad at being uncomfortable? So simple, and it also makes me feel like such a dick. Why is it that the most successful people have often overcome the greatest struggles? How do you find that light in the dark? That's what I'm here to find out. I'm Anna David, and this is Struggle to Success. Hi, welcome to Struggle to Success. I am your host, Anna David. And I'm going to tell you up front, this episode is exactly the reason I wanted to start the podcast moving in this direction, exactly conversations like this. It is with Paul Ollinger. And what he is, is a guy who is, he's a stand-up comedian, but he was also one of the first 300 employees at Facebook, which means that he retired at the age of 42. And that's a pretty interesting conversation you're going to have about what struggle and success mean. You will not look at the words struggle and success the same after listening to this episode. Um, And he's also an extremely funny guy. He's also a podcast host. Uh, He's got his own podcast called Crazy Money. And it's really about something very similar, which is what is our relationship with money? Does it bring happiness? Is it success? Um, so I am super psyched you're along for the ride. This one will convince you in case you're wondering if this transition was really a good thing, if you were comfortable with it. This is the episode that's going to convince you, yes, this was the greatest decision Anna ever made. And my greatest decision was sticking with it. And speaking of which, um, if you want to throw a review up there talking about how much you love this new format and this new uh, angle that we're taking. That would be super awesome. Not at all required. Um, In fact, forget I asked. Just keep listening. Love you. See you next time. This is Paul Ollinger. Hi, Paul. Hi, Anna David. So good to talk to you. Lovely to see you again. A bit of a role reversal in that the last time slash only time we met, I was on your podcast. Mm -hmm. And I was one of your first guests, I'm proud to say. Yeah, and I'm very grateful to to you for your confidence and willingness to to play ball. Of course, I and I in my in my research this morning, I noted that I made your gratitude list that you had a very funny gratitude list that was wow. serious and funny on LinkedIn, and yeah. um and I I got to mention that is not what this is about. What we are talking about is the correlation between struggling and success. Now, yeah. you. Um, I do, I have only met you once before. Uh, I feel that I know you better because I had been very good friends with Mike Carano, who I would say is a bit of a mentee of yours. 
or do you have a symbiotic mentor-mentee relationship of sorts? I think it's that's a good question because in some ways Mike counsels me and in other ways I help him see all the good stuff he has going on in his life and all the potential he has if he kind of uh, gets some of his act together in other areas. So he's the one that inspired me to do the podcast. He's the one that sees more promise in me creatively than I see in myself. And I would say uh, I see more promise in him than he sees in himself from uh, taking care of himself and being in control of his life perspective. Yes, to be fair, everybody sees more potential in Mike Carano than he sees in himself. But, um, but um, yes, uh, so, and so basically what happened with you is you're clearly like a very smart guy who was like, I'm taking the safe path. I'm going to go and you got an MBA at Duke. Dartmouth. Dartmouth, whatever. D, big D, like very fancy. Um, and you, right. um, but you always wanted to be a comedian. And you became a comedian, correct? I didn't know I wanted to be a comedian until I told jokes at a talent show at Dartmouth for business school, which the irony of which I think is hilarious because I went to business school because I wanted to make more money. I grew up in a, uh, a modest, very, we had everything we needed. There was never a missed meal. There was never a missed tuition payment, but um, there was always palpable underlying financial stress in our house. And so I wanted to make money as a kid because I didn't want to stress about money. And first of all, that's hilarious. And second of all, I went to business school because I wanted to make more money. And then I found at business school this passion for the worst uh, paying career anybody could ever try to pursue. One could argue writing is just as bad a career choice in terms of financial stability, but but probably less ha- self hating. I mean, the thing about comedy, <laughs> right, is that is that you're blatantly saying, "I need you to tell me I'm worth it." That's what you're screaming from the stage. Am I right? Well, it's all been a lifelong quest to to, to uh, expunge myself of this original sin with which I was diagnosed by the priests at a very early age, and so yeah. Oh, so grew up Catholic in, uh, where, where was this? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. How many siblings? How many kids? I'm one of six, three boys, three girls. Wow. Which number are you? I'm the youngest boy. I'm number five. Number five. Parents yeah. uh, married, family stayed, unit intact. Stayed married for 55 years until my mom passed away uh, a few years ago. And my father is 92. You can hear him on my podcast also. That was a great episode. Um, and uh, uh, he's, he's, he lives nearby. I live in Atlanta. He lives nearby in the suburbs. And each of my siblings and I all do what we can to take care of him together. So the family is very much still intact. Mm-hmm. Not, perf- not perfect, but, but working sincerely and honestly together to do the best uh, by our father. So this palpable like anxiety around money, how much do you think that affected you internally? Do you think that, that you had a lot of fear? Uh, would you say you struggled with other fears or was that the main one? I tell a joke. And in, in so if I fall into a bit, um, this bit is really based on true experience or me, you, you know, the comedy is an attempt to explain you know, this is me, how I am. And this is why I am how I am. And, um, the joke is something to the effect of, I have trouble relaxing. I think that might have 
to do with the fact that I was raised Catholic by Depression era parents during the Cold War. <laughs> so the anxiety of, I think I picked up on a lot of anxiety around the politics of the time, uh, around my parents being very, very frugal, uh, and, and around a faith that I was raised in that is all about um, you're going to hell if you make a mistake. I happen to I happen to take that literally. Tell me something enough times I'm going to believe you. And so you grew up believing you were going to hell unless you were in fact as perfect as you seem now. Uh, well, I was uh, I, I, I had many impure thoughts. I still have impure thoughts Uh-oh. to this day. Uh, and so I mean there was all kinds of stuff that I was I remember losing a losing a St. Paul medal that my parents got me, you know, and it probably cost $18. And, you know, I lost it at soccer practice one day and I felt guilty and worried about it for weeks until my parents finally found out about it. And I thought I was going to get in trouble. Or I thought I was going to go to hell or whatever. And they were like, oh, that's too bad. You know, you know, don't worry about it. And I was right. like, Oh my God, it was like the greatest feeling of relief. But I didn't tell them because I was worried about, and by the way, my parents never hit me or anything. They weren't going to like, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was just, I felt bad that I had made a mistake and, you know, um, yeah. Wow. We're like four minutes in and we're already getting to my, <laughs> my oh, deep I, I won't be satisfied till you're weeping. So just <laughs> now, okay. So where did you go to undergrad? Rhodes College, Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, so you're like, I am going to be perfect. I am going to do this. You go to business school and you yep. discover this love for, you know, comedy and making people laugh. And what the hell do you do then? You're like, this is the thing that drives me. Uh-oh, I've been prioritizing money the past 20 years. What now? Well, I was very broke at the time. And so uh, I'd borrowed $80,000 in 1995 dollars, which would be approximately 130 or 140 today. So meaningful cash that I had uh, to pay back. And I, I went, I was like, well, I love comedy, but now's not the time to do it because I got to pay this mo- I got to pay this tuition back. That's what you're supposed to do when you borrow money, by the way. You're supposed to pay Allegedly, it. yes. Yes. Uh, it's very old-fashioned uh, attitude to pay back your your loans. Are you talking about? So you're talking about a student loan? You owed the money to, not not yeah. a person loaned you. It was a student <laughs> loan. It was a student loan. Yeah. Gotcha. Was, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and so I I had this debt, and I was like, well, I got to go get a job. Well, what do I want to do? Well, I mean, honestly, I said, well, I'm going to go into. I want to try to get a job in the TV or film business because I'll be sitting in a marketing meeting and I'll make I'll say something funny. And the head of development across the table will be like, Paul, you should be in this show we're producing. And I'll be like, no, not me. Um, but, <laughs> but, but that I never got the chance to do that because nobody in the TV or film business would talk to me because I had no experience, uh, blah, blah, blah. So in 1997, when I graduated, I said, well, this internet thing seems interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll do something along those lines. And I got a job uh, as uh, a sales manager for a music website called launch.com mm-hmm. and that's how I got into the media business and that site was a big deal at the time well it it was it was it was it was uh, respected very much for its uh, for what it was trying to do and unfortunately it was just too early basically it was Spotify plus Pandora or whatever uh, 20 years too early there was no bandwidth 
there was no there were no smartphones that didn't exist and even if there were there wasn't the infrastructure for the product to work on that phone or even to run videos in your house on your laptop because you know the the internet that we had in 1997 through 2000 was crap compared to what we have today so it was a great idea with very very smart people i loved the people that i worked with still am friends with many of them today um, but it, the company just didn't work. Yahoo bought us at the bottom of the busted dot-com bubble in 2001. And over time, under the wings of this much bigger property, it became Yahoo Music and started to thrive. And, and that was where a lot of us kind of started to hit our stride in, um, in the internet. It, it, it actually, with a product that worked, with traffic and with better infrastructure a few years later, like in 0203. And so you were then working for Yahoo Music officially? Yeah. So well, I worked for Yahoo. I, I went into the uh, Yahoo bought us and I decided to go into the broader Yahoo thing. So, but uh, yeah, and I, I did a lot of uh, work with Yahoo Music, but was officially a Yahoo employee. And then you hear about how does this company called Facebook come up in your life? What? Where did you hear about it? What happened? Well, it, I took a detour. Before, I took a comedy detour before I ever got to Facebook. And so, when I left, um, when I when I got out of business school, I was like, "Well, if I ever pay off these loans, I'm going to do stand. I'm going to give stand up comedy a shot." And in the meantime, I had started taking comedy uh, lessons. Yes, there are such things. There's a whole bunch of them everywhere. Um, almost every comedy club has stand-up comedy lessons that they teach during the day. Um, and so I took a few of those courses in LA and I started going to open mics. I started going to bringer shows where I'd bring some friends and they'd give me stage time so that the friends would buy drinks. And um, so I monetized my friendships on behalf of the comedy clubs. Good job. And then um, I happened to meet the people who ran the improv chain of comedy clubs. And I told them I was going to quit and do comedy. And they said, well, if you move back to LA, because I was in New York at the time, we'll put you on stage every weekend at the improvs in Orange County. So I moved back to LA and uh, for two years I hosted at uh, the Irvine and Brea improvs and opened for amazing comics that I had no business opening for yet in my career. Like who? David Tell, Kevin Neal and Colin Quinn, Daniel Tosh, uh, uh, Craig Robinson, uh, um, Chelsea Handler, uh, I mean, people like that, lots of, you know, another dozen people like that that you would recognize. And so that was fulfilling uh, emotionally, but not financially, or were you so set at that point that you didn't actually worry about it? Oh, I was, I was, I was very fortunate that I'd saved some money and I'd paid off my student loans, but I didn't have like lifetime money. And um, it was really exciting. And I, I was, you know, I was pretty bad when I started there. I'd probably only done 40 sets of comedy live. And that's about 400 fewer than I should have had under my belt to get that gig. And I felt that very quickly. And so I did improve significantly over those two years. But in those years, I realized that if you want to make a living at comedy, that's like a 10 year before you really get any traction kind of road. And I was not yet prepared to give it a full decade of my attention. And I got engaged to my wife and I was like, I don't want to be the deadbeat comedian who is living off his wife's work when I know that I could be making hundreds of thousands of dollars in the digital media world. 
And right about that time, I got a call from friends of mine who I'd worked with at Yahoo and they were, they, they were working at a little social media company called Facebook. And they said, you want to join? So you go over there, you're an employee like 200 or something like that? 250-ish, yes. 50-ish. And this was two, like... Two, two, 250 ish. Big difference. Um, Big difference. Um, and this was, what, 2003, 2005? Seven, 2007. 2007. You go there, you move to Menlo Park, whole family. You've got a family by then. No, I stay in LA. I stay, hire me as a, uh, as a salesperson in Los Angeles. Okay. And you, do you have any idea? Nobody had any idea that it was going to become this behemoth at that point, or did you? Well, I did, you know, this was, this was about pardon me, about eight months after they opened it up to people who weren't on college campuses. Yes. So it was still a very, very small, relatively small company. It had about 25 million monthly unique users. Today it has over 2 billion. So it was still, but I could see the concept that if, that if I joined and two of my friends joined and two of each of their friends joined, that's geometric growth, right? And so right. I thought, okay, this, this has the potential to get very big. But I really had no concept of how big it could get. And I literally told my wife when she said, do you think this thing will be big? I said, someday it could be as big as MySpace. <laughs> literally, quote unquote. Yes. And so my vision was very limited relative to what Mark Zuckerberg's vision was. And, you know, there's a whole lot of other evidence for that uh, fact as well. But uh, I, I thought it could be big. I thought, you know, maybe I could pull, you know, some, a little bit of money out of it, that it would be a good way to spend a few years. And at the very least, I really liked the people that I was working with. So why not give it a shot? And how directly were you working with him? With Zuckerberg? Yeah. Oh, I don't, I, I've met Mark maybe a total of a dozen times in my life. I do not claim to know Mark Zuckerberg. And how long were you there? I was there for four and a half years. So during those four and a half years, you have stuck in Facebook that I you do. accrue. And I, I told you I was going to pry. So I actually am going to pry and ask you uh, mm -hmm. how much you got from Facebook. $340 million. Jesus fucking Christ. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's, 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 that's not even close to where I, I, I have a, a frac, a very small fraction of that amount, but I have enough to live for the rest uh, of your life. Very for happily. The rest of my life. Happily. If, if I'm not an asshole and by the way, and there's, we can talk about this and this is what I want to talk about. This is what my whole podcast is about how much you have and how much is enough is something that is constantly a moving number and something that it takes discipline around to maintain appreciation and gratitude for what you have because we as human beings, our appetites tend to grow over time. They do not tend to stabilize. And what feels like an incredible luxury all of a sudden starts to feel normal. There's a concept called the hedonic treadmill, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And if it burned calories the way a real treadmill does, I'd be in crazy good shape because I've acclimated to things that are, that are, that were so out of my league luxury wise, you know, 15 years ago. Now I'm like, oh yeah, of course this is how we vacation. Or of course this is the kind of car I would drive. Or of course this is the kind of house I would want to live in. And so I don't want anybody's empathy or pity. I'm just saying like, 
what you think is a large number today is going to move really far north when you win the lottery. So, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always conscious about saying, okay, if I do want this money to last for the rest of my life, we have to be disciplined about it. We can't let ourselves get lazy financially. In fact, right before I called, right before I dialed into this call, I was on, I was changing gas providers because I'm trying to stay really on top of our bills and make sure, and these guys were screwing us on the price. So I was like, all right, we're changing gas providers. That's so depressing. I want to think you walk away from Facebook with, you know, not 300 million, but let's say 30 million. I don't know. You very, you know, definitely ducked the question and that you get to not worry about things like that. Well, but you know, say it is 30 million, say it's somewhere, you know, some number not meaningfully different than that, but you do that money can go away in, in a blink of an eye if you're not smart about it. And, and I, you know, look, I don't, we don't, we don't, we're trying not to sweat the small stuff, but where we're also trying to make sure we don't get lazy about it and that the, where we're spending the money is in places that provide us with a lot of value, you know, like, um, I don't fly, I don't fly first class, but we sure shit fly, you know, premium comfort whenever it's available. Right. Right. You know? And so, um, when I, when I travel for comedy, I stay in a pretty crappy hotel. When my wife and I go on vacation, we stay in pretty damn nice places. Right. So it's all about just deciding where that money, that extra money gives you happiness and allowing yourself to spend it there as opposed to just being like making it rain wherever you go, you know? Yeah. And, and to everyone, it's different to some people, it, you know, like their personal happiness does depend on staying in a nice place when they travel for comedy because they can, you know, and everyone, I think it's a very, very, <clears throat> that's, this is such a fascinating topic. And of course I knew what the hedonic principle is, which is to say, I had never heard of it until you just brought it up, <laughs> but it makes a lot of sense to me. And what I feel is what I think could be the saving grace here is how long you struggled for it relative and how much you can keep that struggle in your brain and in your consciousness. You know, Mm -hmm. like I can compare it to recovery, which is, you know, 18 and a half years sober. All I really remember are the dark days. So Mm -hmm. I, I hear people in meetings all the time talk about, Oh wow. I remember the good. I don't remember them. They're not in my psyche the way the bad days are. That's just pure luck. Um, and you know, it's like, I've struggled to find a happy relationship. Now I found one and I'm so grateful, but what if in three years I forget that? Um, you know, it, it, it really, I, you know, and, and when you didn't struggle for so long, did you? I mean, how old were you when you came into this windfall? What, what do you mean? I didn't struggle. You mean I didn't struggle to get to the it's, Facebook money? Yeah. Or did you? Well, Keep in mind that I was I was broke or I had a negative net worth until I was 32 or 33. Uh, and I had less than $30,000 in the bank until I was 35. Right. And then at 42 I retired. <laughs> so so uh, and 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 that introduced a whole other struggle in my life that kicked off where I am today, but like 
you know, 42 is not old, but it's not young. You're not a kid when you're 40. And it's young to retire in our. Oh, it's, to, oh, it's totally, it's to, totally young to retire. But what I mean is like, Hey, it's a whole lot. You're, you're a whole lot more mature and ready to handle a windfall when you're 42 than you are when you're 27. You yes, know, like absolutely. Had, had I been single in New York city and made, you know, tens of millions of dollars, I probably would have started doing blow and acting like I thought I was supposed to and buying a house in the Hamptons. And then who knows what would have happened with my life. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a far bigger blessing if you get your dough when you are more settled down as a human being than if, if you get it when you're young, because lots of bad stuff can happen. Well, so something I really remember about when you interviewed me on your podcast was talking about your kids and Mm -hmm. how do you give them the desire to struggle when they can have whatever they want, unlike in your childhood, where that's Mm -hmm. where that drive came from. So what have you settled on? How do you handle that? Well, I think the more, the more I think about it, the more I reflect on it, um, that I did have and I was just thinking about this on this last interview that I did, I did have a very uh, privileged childhood. And I don't mean that from an economic standpoint. I mean it from the fact that I had a mom and dad who were stable, healthy, good people who were dedicated to their parent, to their children's upbringing. And that's really something that even people of uh, who have a lot of money, a lot of them don't have that. And so First of all, I want to say that like I had a great set of parents from whom I've benefited tremendously. Um, and I think we we lose sight of that to say, oh, well, I don't have a lot of these so a lot. Some families have more money. They're luckier than I are. Well, you know, if there's psychosis in your home, it doesn't matter how much money you have. We didn't have all that. It wasn't perfect. But it was pretty damn good. Um, so but, but but to the question specifically that you asked. It's a work in progress. There's a, one of the early interviews that I had was with a New York Times journalist named Ron Lieber, uh-huh. who wrote a book called The Opposite of Spoiled, which is uh-huh. a really interesting read about teaching children values through the lens of money. It's not necessarily just about the money. It's about what does the money symbolize in our family and in this world. And one of the big questions he helps parents and their children wrestle with is what is enough and he has this really interesting concept called the lands end line you know what lands in is no lands end is like ll bean it's oh, a oh yeah i thought it was going to be like hedonic principle or something i didn't no 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 this is yes 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 yeah yes. it's 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 this it's this uh, wisconsin uh, yeah. retailer that that sells very good not sexy yeah. clothing and he says, you know, as a parent, your job is to provide your kid with food, shelter, and clothing, right? So he says he feels like if he can provide his daughter with a lands in equivalent of whatever, whatever product she wants, huh. whatever, you know, if she wants the hunter boots instead of the land in, lands and rubber boots, well, whatever the extra $100 is between the cost of those two goods, that's luxury. And she huh. can figure out a way to pay for that themselves. And, wow. and so he runs through all these different principles about spend, save, give, meaning you have an allowance and he believes you should give your kids allowance and use allowance as a way to talk about like, okay, well, what does money do? Where does money come from? What do you do with it? 
and let your kids make some small mistakes with, you know, so my kids get uh, eight and eight or $9 a week, respectively, based on the number of years they've been alive. And we divide it into these jars, spend, save, give, or they're actually virtual jars because their money doesn't even arrive. We have a tool called Greenlight, which is an Atlanta startup that does really cool things. It's a child's debit card. And they have accounts where they can say, okay, well, I want to spend this. I'm, I'm saving for these three things. And when I get you know, $40 in my give account, I'm going to give it to the local animal shelter or whatever. And so while it, while it may sound to some people that giving kids an allowance is actually sort of a spoiled thing that they have, it's actually a good tool to help them learn how money works. And it's not necessarily that you have money that might lead you to make bad decisions later in life. It's sort of how you think about it. And so, and so we're trying to talk frankly to our kids about, about what money is. We haven't gotten into the, um, <clears throat> you know, how much money does mommy and daddy have or how much do our neighbors have? But even with, you know, as, as fortunate as we are, there are families around us who have significantly more. And so we have to talk about, hey, why does our friend have a chef or a private plane and we don't? And it's okay, kids. Mm. And, and that's what's just freaking bizarre that, you know, your rich kid comes home from his friend's house and says, when are we going to hire a chef? And you go, wow, <laughs> wow. You know. In Atlanta, I mean, I know there's lots of money everywhere, but like it's not Los Angeles where everybody, you know, is allegedly so materialistic. Well, it's maybe not as in your face as LA and it's maybe not as extreme as LA, but it's, you know, there, as you say, there's, there, there's money everywhere. There are rich and poor people everywhere. Um, and how it manifests is, is maybe unique to each place, but the, the fact that there's always somebody with more is a, is a truism that we as human beings have to come to peace with. Otherwise, we'll always end up feeling like we're playing catch up. And by the way, the people that pretend, a lot of times people pretend that they have a whole lot more than they have. And I, and I think LA, that's certainly, uh, there's a lot of financial posturing and professional posturing out there that maybe there's a little less of here. Not that there's none of it, but there's maybe a little bit more in LA. I, you know, I never, I, I sort of see that part of it. My story is I grew up with money and saw that it did not bring happiness yeah. and had every, uh, oh, I think we talked, we talked about this on your, yeah, we talked about your dad, about your, uh, the stereo supply store. Yeah, for yes, sure. Top of the Hill Daily City. Um, yeah. but, but <laughs> I, where, where I feel like money is so center stage is I've lived in New York. And I remember being in New York where it was pouring rain and you could, and the subway had stopped. So you actually had no, and there were no cabs. Um, so unless you had a driver, you were actually in the midst of like this horrible downpour. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, at least in LA. I mean, LA is so weird because it's like the people who are living the best are like the grifters who are in the producer's household, the producers on location. It's such a bizarre place. Um, <laughs> But okay, we have to get toward you know wrapping up. So two que two questions before we get to our lightning round. Yeah. Exciting. What does the word struggle mean to you? Well, uh, my first reaction is to say that I think as human beings we need struggle. That 
it is an important part of keeping us alive. And <clears throat> pardon me. When I, when I left my job at Facebook at 42 years old, I thought that it was going to be like roses and wine and it was going to be amazing. And in fact, shortly after taking some trips and getting back in shape and reading some of the books that have been stacking up on my nightstand, I found myself very lonely and depressed. And as much as I was stressed out working hard at Facebook, I missed the struggle. I missed having something to work on that was bigger than just me. We are, we, if, if, you're, if you're not seeking meaning, if you're not seeking accomplishing, you're going to die. And so, um, I, uh, so struggle, I think, is a good thing. And struggle means working towards something bigger than yourself. There's other kinds of struggles too, like illness and grief and, and those things, which I've been very fortunate to, to have very little of in my life. At some point, they will come, and I'll learn more about what that kind of struggle means. But for the purposes of our conversation today, I'll define struggle as some, trying to accomplish something that's, that's, that's outside of your specific identity. Love it. That's great. And what does success mean? I think success is all about being grateful for what you have and, 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 and the opportunity to try to create more out of it. And, um, if you're, if you're, if you have enough, and by the way, I don't, I don't want to sit there and say, oh, it doesn't matter if you have nothing or a million dollars. It does matter. If you have nothing, it sucks. Okay. But if you have enough to live a pretty good life, you know, some people say it's about $80,000 a year or whatever. If you have enough to live in a nice, a, a safe place that's clean and dry and you have enough to eat and you can take care of your kids, it's, it's, that's, that's good. That's really good. So being a, you know, being, being appreciative for what you have, for the people around you, the opportunity to be of service to, to others. Um, I think that's what success looks like. I love it. So good. Okay. Here's our lightning round. What okay. is your morning routine? <laughs> um, the first thing I do in the morning is I go on LinkedIn Who's viewed your profile? I don't believe you. Because I want to find out if anybody in India was thinking about me last night. That's, um, I, I actually do think like there's this instinct that I'm trying to check myself on. And that's, you know, like so many people, I sleep with my phone next to me. And when I wake up, I like pick up my phone and see what, what that's presented to me, which I think is completely unhealthy and horrible and terrible. My morning activity and I don't get, I don't, I don't do it every morning, but I'm, I'm working on it and I'm doing it more and more mornings. I try to wake up about five 30, a little earlier if I can, I have prep pre-made coffee the night before. So I walk into the kitchen, I switch on the coffee, I go brush my teeth, go TT and I get out the coffee. I open my laptop and I start, try to work on the most important thing that I could be working on that day between five 38 and 7 AM during the school year are the most productive is the most productive hour and 22 minutes of my day because it's not, I'm, there's no distractions and my brain can really do some deep focus on writing, whether it's writing more comedy or working on the book uh, that I'm trying to finish that I am finishing. Um, that's, that's how I try to spend that those, those pre dawn or pre day starting hours. Great. What, uh, what is the book that, first that was it. 
that wasn't exactly lightning. That answer wasn't exactly lightning. It, it was wasn't, so- nor was it what I was expecting. I thought it was going to be like, I go outside and I, I commune with nature and, um, and then I, you know, ask my higher power what I should be doing. Anyway, I, well, no, you know, I, do, I do meditate and I, and I've been meditating for about a year and I do believe I've gotten a ton of benefit out of it. But all these guys that write these books about their morning ritual and taking an ice bath, it's like, go fuck yourself. You know, <laughs> most people are listening to you and most people, they don't, first of all, where are they going to put an ice bath in their one bedroom apartment? So, okay. In the tub, fair enough. However, sure. like, most people don't need to try to be perfect. They just need to try to get better. Just make, just get 10% better every year. That's what you should work on. That's I, the end of my comment. No, a good rant. I, I appreciate it. But like those, here's what you should do in the morning articles just always go viral. And for some reason, everybody wants to know what you should do first thing in the morning. I don't find it confusing. I, I know what I do. Anyway. I wake and I, up, I, I masturbate and then... <laughs> I mean, don't, I mean, how, 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 what percentage of people would actually tell the truth if that's how they started? Like, I can't get out of bed unless I masturbate. And I bet that's a really large number of people. So if that's your routine, listeners, God bless you. Do what it takes. Embrace it. I feel like someone like Jim Norton would happily say that, but he's one in a, you know, a world of 8 billion people. So, okay. What's the book that changed your life aside from Party Girl? I did like Party Girl and I <clears throat> I think every time I see a Gap credit card, I think about um, her oh, cutting up cocaine with a Gap credit card. <laughs> I forgot that. Um, what is the book that changed your life? The book that changed my life. Um, um, gosh, there's so many. Give um, me one. You know, I think I, I'll, I'll go way back, and it's a little hacky, but um, um, The Great Gatsby. One of my favorites too. Obsessed no, I, with Fitzgerald. I, I was obsessed. I read Fitzgerald in college uh, as much as I could find because his class um, aspirations really, really resonated with me. Um, I felt like I was the. I felt like I was Gatsby who grew up and didn't get the girl because I didn't have enough money and and that was all by the way a narrative that I constructed. You know because I. Uh, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I, when I read Gatsby, I was like, oh, that's kind of how I'm going to be successful. And yet I didn't see the tragedy in it. You know, like I didn't see the shallowness of it and how, even though he had all this money, like didn't mean anything, you know? And so he, you were like Nick Carraway before, you know, about th- up until about three quarters through the novel. Well, not Nick. It was it was really about Gatsby because Gatsby was the poor kid that made all the money. Am I misinterpreting this book? Or am but, I? I thought you, I I was I I assumed you were talking about more early childhood when you would look at someone like Gatsby, but you're actually talking about once you had your wealth. Well, no, I mean, like, so Nick Carroll is the bond salesman next door, right? Yeah, that was but they're a, telling us the story. Yeah, yeah. Daisy's cousin or whatever. Yeah. So so I just well, I kind of looked at the whole thing like I was fascinated. Um, do you remember the book, A Separate Piece? Yeah, I never got into that. Yeah, well, so, but I kind of fantasized, like, as a kid, like, I thought, <clears throat> I thought kids that went to, you know, like, boarding school in Northeast were just, like, all these romantic characters, and yeah, right? <laughs> and so, you can't see the faces she's making right now, listeners. Well, but, I, everybody I know went to boarding school. Yeah, not true. Go on. Right. So, 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 so the illusion, you saw through the illusion, but I thought, it's like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to you know, go to school in the woods in New Hampshire or Massachusetts or whatever. And, 
you know, with all these interesting kids and, you know, uh, clearly I was misguided, but, but, and maybe that's why I ended up at Dartmouth for business school, by the way. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, I always felt like Fitzgerald's, you know, Fitzgerald's, uh, expressions of class aspiration was, I, it resonated with me. And in fact, I was, and I had, when fraternity pledges, uh, would have to write a quote in their pledge manual or whatever, I had something that was about, um, um, you know, youth's insufficiency is, uh, was, was that it couldn't see the day for itself, but it had to be comparing the day to its, uh, unimaginable, unattainable future or something like that. So that's like, so like I was, me, is it? No, it's, no, that's from, a, I think that's from the diamond as big as a Ritz. Okay. Now that's great because the next question in the lightning round, which you are definitely going to work on going faster on is favorite quote. <laughs> Favorite, favorite quote. All right, can I pause for once? Can we just pause the recording? No. Favorite quote. Um, um, gosh, darn it. You know, this would have been a better lightning round if you'd give me the answers or the questions. I, I know. You know what? We can skip it and we'll go back. You're gonna, we're going to get your right. brain like working on it in All the right background. Now. Go, go. Do, do you have a mentor? Do I have a mentor? I've Mike had Carano. lots of... Well, that's, yeah, I, 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 calling Mike my mentor is sort of, you know, bizarre, but in some ways, Mike's my mentor when it comes to, he's the one that told me you've got to do the podcast and he convinced yeah. me to do the podcast. Um, so he's a mentor in some ways. I've had uh, a corporate coach that was invaluable to me. I've had, um, I've been, I was very, very fortunate to have very, very solid male adult role models growing up. And so there's three or four, uh, that I could mention, but, but suffice to say, I've been the uh, beneficiary of some very kind people in my life. Okay. That was slightly better in terms of speed, spiritual practice. Stoicism meets Buddhism. (laughs) That's great. And I'm glad that I shamed you into a few words and an answer. Best quality. Um, My best quality Comparison is the thief of joy is my quote. Love it. <laughs> Good job. Um, and my best quality is the ability to return to tasks and get them done quickly. Great. Worst quality. Overthinking. Great. That's it. You survived. Uh, this was such a good conversation. I mean, am I allowed to say that? Yes. You're th- you brought it out. It's all you. You're, you're, I agree. you're I, very good at this. Now, okay, so people, if you want to find out more about Paul, for sure download Crazy Money, the podcast, which you can get where? Everywhere? Anywhere you get, uh, anywhere you get uh, podcasts, you will find Crazy Money. iTunes is a pretty good place to do it. It's a good place. Um, and then you are doing comedy right now. Can people find out about that? Yes, I keep my dates up to date, although I haven't added the next five or so shows uh, on my website at paulollinger.com slash events. Ollinger is O-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Two L's, as is common in Luxembourg. Uh, <laughs> Paul, thank you so much. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And um, yeah, I feel like I pried some stuff out of him. If you, by the way, listener, have stuff you want to pry yourself out of you, weird i know this is an odd train way of talking um go uh and you think you might have a book in you go to futureauthorquiz.com take the 
quiz, write a book like Paul is writing right now. He also does have a previously published book called You Must Go to Business School. Is that what it's called? You should totally get an MBA. You should totally get an MBA. Of all the books about business school written by comedians, it's the best. <laughs> Paul, thank you. Uh, listeners, I will talk to you next week. Bye.